Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply, absolutely everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like pins, tomatoes, and drains. Or fun, homespun, and pun. Or buns, nuns, and tons. And there are tons of nuns in history. (laughs) Did you know that? Absolutely tons of nuns. There's a whole project on nuns. Oh. Well, many projects on nuns, but nuns all over the place. Nuns on the run. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew? Who knew, Sam? Did you know this? That the history of running away is in fact all about the glorious revolution and James II. It's about slavery and the Underground Railroad. It's about the kinder transport and the child's game Knock Knock Ginger. Or that the history of the lean is in fact all about urbanisation, pensioners, disability, extortion and walks around cricket pitches. Did you know that, Sam? (laughs) I did. And the history of the lean was one of our most abstract and most entertaining ones. I think we should do more abstract ones, actually. Something like that. I'm going to put my brain to it and we'll come up with something. something I, was, I was thinking about lots today um, as I was listening to the news and I was thinking we should do the history of drive-bys, Whoa. the history of <laughs> lying, okay, uh, the history of elections. Uh, I think we should also do the history of kitchens, rain, yes. wetness, damp. <laughs> Damn, it's fun. We, like have that. we done boredom yet? Uh, yeah, yeah we, have. Done, we have. We've done, done boredom. boredom. Yeah, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Boredom. Um, well, here's Chairs. That, a... <laughs> We've done the chair. <laughs> we are. 
There's a, there's a whole load coming your way, everyone. Um, looking forward to doing that. The man not sitting opposite me, we're apart uh, from each other with the other side of town because of coronavirus. Well, let me just say that he is the ladder and paint pots of history. He's the banana skin of history. It's <laughs> Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. That's very funny indeed. Uh, and the man not sitting opposite me because we haven't dared get into the cramped space of our recording studio. And he is across town. Well, let's just say if his if a historian were a comedian, then he'd be the Eric Morecambe of the history world. So revered are his legendary hysterical historical powers. He's also an incredibly funny man and has had me quite literally crying with laughter on our tour around the country. It is indeed uh, my favourite historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Thank you, James. Hello, Sam. Very kind of you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, today, if you haven't worked it out yet, we're going to be doing the history of laughter. And uh, again, it's something that we've both been wanting to do for some time. I think everyone needs cheering up a bit nowadays, James. I think they do. And uh, and as as I was doing research for this, I was thinking about times in my life when I've just laughed uncontrollably. Like, you know, those sort of moments where I think when I was a lot younger, I used to laugh a lot more. That probably makes me sound like a sort of sad um, middle-aged man. But but I remember as a child just finding things so funny. (laughs) I remember this one time in maths class, and I was about 11, and my best friend at the time, a man called... Oh, he is a man now, but a boy called Dominic Howdjigo, would look at me in the face and just raise his eyes and do something with his mouth that would sort of twitch his mouth, and it would just set me off laughing. And it happened once in front of her maths teacher, um, and we just (laughs) laughed in her face. Her name was Mrs Thomason, and she had national health glasses uh, tied up with uh, an elastoplast. It's like Um, an evil superpower, being able to make someone crack up. Yes. Just whenever you want. I I have um, several memories of completely losing it as well, usually in a controlled or somehow confined situation um looking back on it now usually in church of some description or some kind of (laughs) wedding or funeral or chapel or um uh like you know a university prize giving um something where, where you're there are large groups of you all sat down and you're supposed to not crack up with laughter and and hoot and howl um yeah yes um because it's it's indecorous to do so at a funeral. <laughs> well, it's just slightly on the tip of my tongue, but I, I definitely know it's happened to me recently, and I just can't put my finger on it. I definitely know it's happened to me recently. For a full face-hurting agony. Um, <laughs> trying to keep, trying to stifle a laugh. Trying to stifle a laugh, trying to keep, keep one from, from bubbling up. I wonder when that was, but no doubt it was somewhere socially inappropriate because that's the way that my laughs come out most of the time, usually. Which is it's a miracle I'm not an MP, I'll tell you. Yes. Or, or, a ju- yes, or a judge, um, or the Queen, <laughs> yeah, or the Queen. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. Never been able to control myself properly uh, in that respect. So yeah, there we go. It's happened a couple of times filming. Definitely, definitely. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, in quite serious circumstances, usually in China, talking about uh, <laughs> talking about you know something inappropriate, like a, a skeleton that's been unearthed or something that I. 
But I had a very, I had a really, a very entertaining time traveling the world filming and the film crews we work with, working with directors my sort of age. Everyone's um, weirdly has a kind of a similar sense of humor and was very good fun. And there was a there was a sound recorder who made me crack up all the time. We had a very serious meeting once <laughs> when um, uh, <laughs> this is coming back to me now. We had to. Um, it was it was politically sig- our presence somewhere was politically significant for the local representative of the um, the Chinese party, and we did our filming there. And then he took us to dinner afterwards, and this guy was absolutely rabbiting on, wouldn't stop talking. And uh, the guy sitting on my left had actually um, his friend of mine, who's the sound recorder, secretly filmed him with his phone because his mannerisms were so comical, and then pinged it to me in the middle of the conversation. So I received this message of this man talking to me as it was happening um which made me made made the giggles come out again socially inappropriate please don't do this don't film someone when they're talking to you but uh, at the time it was it was truly brilliant yeah that's the history of rudeness it is the history of rudeness yeah anyway um so laughter there are so many ways you can do it you've touched on uh, moments in your own personal history and as a historian James and I uh, we both think that one of the ways to get into any subject is to put yourself in the driver's seat and go well how does it how does it um, affect me how has it happened to me so laughter is a very good one in doing that when have you laughed why have you laughed and how have you laughed a um, very good place to start but how else can we think about about it I look I mean I didn't know anything about the history of laughter and one of the key things to do as a historian is try and get at the historiography of it um, this is quite easy to pinpoint. 1977, it was the year I was born, historian called Keith Thomas wrote a very significant um, work on the history of laughter. And for the very first time, he associated laughter with class relations, with politics, with religion, and particularly identified growing attempts amongst elites throughout British history to curb audible or uncontrolled laughter. So you have laughter here presented as the vulgarity of the mob. So there's a, a very key, um, clear place to start there. You can go back and look at the historiography to see what historians have written about it when. How else can we think about it, James? Well, we can think about it. Um, we can think about it scientifically. Yep. We can think about the science of laughing. Um, we can think about different kinds of laughing. The sort of mad, crazy, wicked laugh. So I always think about the the Wicked Witch of the West in <laughs> my pretties. <laughs> so in in Wizard of Oz, just in case you didn't recognise that. Or we can think about the we can think about giggling. We can think about chuckling, um, cackling, a belly laugh, side splitting laugh. We can think about a guffaw, uh, a snicker, a snigger, uh, or a a snort Ooh, yeah. uh, as a as a laugh. Um, we can think about what causes laughter, so whether it's whether it's something that's positive and joyful that you've heard a, a joke or it's it's a shared intimacy or humour, or whether it's something that's slightly more negative. So it's it's nervous laughter. It's um it's you feel you feel that you're bound to laugh at somebody. So for example, I imagine uh, lots of people around. Um, uh, important political figures at the moment feel obliged to have to laugh at their jokes. Um, so we can think about it from from all of those sort of points of view, giggling uncontrollably, like I did with my friend in class, Dominic. How'd you go? We can also think about it in terms of 
in terms of different kinds of laughter throughout history. And I too read the Times Literary Supplement uh, Keith Thomas article, and I'll be digging into that a little bit later. Um, but one of the things that he talks about there is the way in which the meaning of laughter and the acceptability of laughter has changed over time. So what you unpacked earlier was the 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 targets of laughter. So the church being the target of laughter, the poor being the target of laughter, women often being the target of laughter. And we can see that through jest books, for, which are basically like humorous comic books, joke books um, from the 16th and 17th century. But also whether it is socially acceptable to laugh you know, across the ages. And rather like when we looked at the smile and we did our chapter on the history of the smile, you know, the smile for a long time was associated with idiots, low-born people, drunkards, witches, criminals, you know. So, and so how does laughter fit into, how does laughter fit into history like that? And also, I think about it in terms of, in terms of not just social class, but background, culture, uh, gender, uh, people of different educational abilities, different ages. So the kinds of things that children laugh at, you know, are different from, you know, the, the kinds of things that um, that uh, that older people laugh at. I must admit myself, I have a very puerile sense of humour, uh, <laughs> a very childish sense of humour. My, my, my children say um, that I, I indulge in daddy jokes, right. uh, which, you know, is a total put down. Uh, my my humour is it's wonderful. I have a wonderful sense of humour. <laughs> sophisticated, um, a very sophisticated <laughs> sense. You know, very unsophisticated. The, um, it's a sort of Ben Ben Elton sort of um, toilet humour. Uh, yeah, I, I find very amusing. I mean, you're picking up on what you were saying about gendering there. That's interesting. And I just came across a little, uh, just one little example I want to give you here. This is uh, from the Mirror of Good Manners in 1510. That's a long, huh? long time ago. Loud giggling and laughing is but a foolish sign and evident token of manners feminine. So that's particularly associating giggling in terms of foolish laughter, already having gendered associations that long ago. And there's another one here. Uh, we are 1683, a 1683 advice book. Um, these advice books and books about manners are fascinating in their own right. And you can come across laughter, but there's all sorts of other behavioural things there. We have to laugh as women do sometimes with their hands on both sides. That's interesting. And with a lascivious agitation of their whole body is the height of indecency and immodesty. So here we've got clear associations between types of laughing, the way people are laughing and and gender. Uh, something that you can follow right through, but just to demonstrate how early it goes and how wide our ability of historians is to be able to tackle this subject in so many, many different ways yeah and that's interesting because laughter there becomes effeminate so it's something that's used to ridicule ridicule men that they're not laughing in a it, they're not laughing in a manly enough way yeah it's interesting um, there isn't a, there isn't an opposite of that obviously so it leaves us to imagine what a manly enough way would be um clearly having your hands by your sides is is somehow inappropriate uh, which means you've got to be doing something different with your hands to 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 laugh like a man. Probably holding a a, a something a glass of ale, yeah, something like a, that, a sword you know, or a sword, <laughs> or gesturing in <clears throat> a particular way. I'm going to talk about gender later on as well. Great, great. Um, and a, a brilliant book that I read a while ago by Pamela Allen Brown, 
called Better a Shrew Than a Sheep, Women, Drama and the Culture of Jest in Early Modern England, uh, which is a superb sort of study of uh, basically of jesting literature, but the way in which laughter uh, could puncture uh, patriarchy in the early modern period. Hmm. So I'll, I'll talk about that. But do you want to start? OK, yes, I, I want to start actually um, rather than with a... Well, it is both. It is both a specific example of laughing in history, uh, but it makes a more general point as to why we as historians need to think about laughter. Um, And so this is as much about uh, how to be a historian as it is to reveal the the history of laughter. And I've got an... You just touched on this right at the beginning there, all the different types of laugh that there are. This is actually from an article in 1994 called The Stages of Laughter. And um, the author identifies a huge variety of different types of laugh. And they go from smirking... Um, which is completely voluntary, it's controllable, uh, it's a little just upturning of the corners of the mouth, you've got a smile, cacinate was a lovely word I hadn't come across, meaning to laugh loudly. A cacophonous. Uh, oh, yes. Cacophonous laughter. Ah, I hadn't heard that. Um, uh, chuckle, chortle, laugh, cackle, guffaw, howl, volume and pitch rise higher and higher and the body becomes more animated. A shriek. I think you shriek quite a lot, James. Greater intensity than a howl. <laughs> Very effeminate. <laughs> Sense of helplessness and vulnerability. Uh, that's excellent. Or a roar, a bellow, or convulsing when your body is completely out of control in a fit of laughter, resembling a seizure. Um, extremities fail aimless, flail aimlessly, balance is lost, you gasp for breath and collapse or fall off the chair. I think that's what happened to me in church that time, which was the, the haunting memory that I've got where I can't specifically give a time for when it happened because I buried it deep into my subconscious. Why does this matter? Well, it matters in a great deal in oral history um, because what you're trying to do as an oral historian, if you're interviewing some someone particularly if you're actually writing down a transcript of what you're listening to then being able to identify the noises that you are hearing people make that are not words is absolutely crucial to being able to understand how they are using laughter to communicate it's very similar to analyzing physical expressions or silences as well if you think you read a letter, you know, it's been, it's been considered, it's been thoughtfully written down. You don't see the gaps where someone's scratched their head, they've thought they've gone for a walk for 10 minutes to try and work out what they're going to write next. But you do get that in oral histories. It's why it's such an electric form of history. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you've not sat down and listened to someone being interviewed, um, all sorts of wonderful recordings you can easily find online, do so. Because... Um, I think it's such an important way of realising the gaps you're missing when you're looking at written work. Now, the particular example I've come across here, this is from the Oral History Review uh, very recently. And it was it's an interview with a historian about her conducting an interview. So the historian is Stephanie Panicelli Battaglia. She is an associate professor of global sustainable development at the University of Warwick. And she has done a project looking at healthcare professionals in Cuba. And I thought this was fascinating. So uh, since the 19, early 1960s, Cuba has offered access to healthcare in areas all over the world, uh, particularly in terms of disaster relief. And 
the interview has spoke to a few of these these people who who had been out and about and i just want to read you this extract here um now importantly this is an interview with the historian after she had conducted the interviews okay say hello to a new era of mental health care cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100 online you'll experience the all-new cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. During the interview, Carolina told the traumatic story of her escape, the stress she underwent in every step of it from planning to the journey itself and fear of getting caught at some point through this process. However, despite reliving the experience while narrating it, she laughed many times, up to a point that I sometimes struggled with the transcription of the interviews. She laughed when remembering her stress, when recalling each moment of her escape process and journey that she thought would not succeed, and when telling me about her arrival in the United States and her encounter with her sister she had not seen in years. She also laughed when explaining how she managed to trick the Cuban surveillance system in place at the mission. At no point did Carolina try to be funny when telling me this story, nor was she using humour. However, she was laughing often and in some cases so much that it was interrupting her narration. This laughter told me so much more about where she was in her coping process, in her acculturation process and in her adaption process than words would have been able to express. And this laughter had no connection with humour. 
In the case of my interviews, I noticed when analysing laughter that my participants often laughed when thinking about the person they were at the time of the story they were telling. They laughed remembering how little they knew about the outside world, how naive they were in some instances, but also how courageous and daring they had been. I think it's absolutely fascinating, that interview, because what you've got here is the importance of understanding laughter as an oral historian, the question of what exactly are you listening to it and why are you listening to it? Why are these people laughing? Um, And also the importance of laughter and telling tales about your own past, self-awareness. That's one aspect we didn't talk about, James, when you and I were talking about laughter in our own past. We simply talked about moments where we found things funny rather than using laughter as a tool to perhaps laugh at ourselves. And also, you know, the importance of laughter as a communication tool, which is what I think is so important about it, Uh, particularly when you are looking at a historical source. It's not just what it says. It's really important to think about how people would have reacted to that at the time. It's another whole layer of um, historical inquiry that we can get to. So there you are, James, a bit of laughter and being a historian. Oh, I love it. Love it. And, And also oral history. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think one of the extraordinary things there is how do you oral history is such a slippery medium for the historian and you know, if you are if you're listening out for laughter but also other sort of emotional elements of it and and also visual elements it means that actually the oral history interview is such a complicated thing for the yeah. historian to to look at it's it's why you need to video it in some ways and see see the video, but also why the recording sometimes isn't quite enough. Um, why a transcript certainly isn't enough because you miss out all of those. But also, it's the the skills of the psychologist are needed in this to unpack all this. Brilliant, excellent example, Sam. Right, I'm going to take us to um, Keith Thomas because I always find that when I'm it was me who picked on laughter. And the only reason I did it was because I'd been trawling through uh, various things and came across Keith Thomas's uh, Times Literary Supplement article from the 1977. It was published the 21st of January 1977. And it's titled The Place of Laughter in Tudor and Stuart England. And I thought, actually, I want to do laughter simply because I want to go back and read this. And so I spent the weekend sort of pouring through this. Uh, and it's excellent. It's based on the Sir John Neal uh, lecture, uh, memorial lecture that he gave Um in the 70s and I don't think it's ever properly been published uh, outside of the TLS he promises a longer version Uh, if anyone knows where that longer version is um, I couldn't locate it and I Mm. went to the uh, bibliography of British and Irish history and couldn't locate it there Um, but anything that Keith Thomas writes I love and it is an absolute goldmine for the kind of thing uh, that Sam and I do and I think in some ways when he was doing this topic, giving this lecture, in some ways he was proving to a rather stuffy uh, group of historians that actually something like laughter could be serious. And it was probably something that a serious Tudor historian like Sir John Neill, who is the great Elizabethan uh, professor, great Elizabethan expert, I think it's something he probably wouldn't have approved of um, and would have seen it as something, you know, more more the sort of the terrain of anthropologists or literary critics. Um, But actually, it's a really serious uh, historical, it's a really, really serious historical topic. 
because, and I quote here, this is what this is how he justifies it. By raising the interesting problem of changing standards of seemliness and the reasons for those changes, the historical study of laughter brings us right up against the fundamental values of past societies. For when we laugh, we betray our innermost assumptions. Moreover, laughter has a social dimension. Jokes are a pointer to joking situations, areas of structural ambiguity in society itself, and their subject matter can be a revealing guide to past tensions and anxieties. And then he goes through a whole range of things um, that where he shows how um, humour or laughter kind of punctuates certain sort of stuffiness. So he starts by looking at the way in which laughter around marriage works and you can see that either on the London stage so he looks at um, he looks at plays but also he looks at uh, jest books and you can see poking fun at husbands and wives at cuckholes as at lascivious widows foolish husbands all of these reflect contemporary anxieties of the period so we see a whole range of people you know who are you know, who are scolds or henpecked husbands. And he, he follows this into community traditions as well. So it's not just written down in jest books or in plays, but also it is in, also it is in the things like the Sharivari that we've talked about in the past. So the way in which neighbours mocked their, their people who lived by them, putting horns on the doors, sticking rhymes on the wall. Um, they were told the bell in the church in derisive anticipation of their victim's demise. So laughter in villages becomes a sort of form of crude moral censorship, but also a way of punctuating some of the sort of um, the social tensions. He then talks about how it can be used against foreigners. Uh, and there are a whole range of jokes about Spaniards and Italians and the Dutch and Germans being drunk all the time. There are anti-Semitic jokes, jokes against Welsh Welshmen. There are all sorts of things that, you know, enable you to start thinking about how English people during the 16th and 17th century felt about their, their neighbours. There are also, um, there's also laughter and humour that is directed against the lower classes though that shows them as rustic and stupid and idiotic. Um, and then there there are regional variations in this. You know, um, the attitudes towards broad Devonshire and blunt-speaking northerners are often seen as, as rustics. So they're people who aren't part of the, the sort of cultured court or London uh, elite. And likewise, uh, figures who are at court can also be lampooned, uh, for, you know, to... to to sort of show that they are, you know, quite sort of stuffy as well. Um, there's also, um, he also touches on the idea of the fool or the jester uh, mm. at court. Uh, and we know that Henry VIII uh, and his um, Will Summers, his his fool, uh, Elizabeth I's fool, all, all the monarchs had, had fools who could use their laughter to sort of almost as a sort of mirror to hold up to the monarch, uh, to not take themselves quite so seriously. Um, scatological humour is also very, very prevalent 
uh, and is also a particularly lethal uh, political weapon. You think about the, the Parliament fart, for example, uh, or you think about the, um, the Jess books that retailed stories um, about the Duke of Ormond and the Duchess of Marlborough and many others. Um, who who sort of farted in front of the Queen, for example? Thomas puts this down to a, a largely a largely vegetable diet. Uh, <laughs> what, what is which, the Parliament fart? What does that even mean? The, par the Parliament fart is a poem about the, about a, an early seventeenth century um, an early seventeenth century uh, parliamentary session right. uh, that then that then circulates around and around and around. But also at the beginning of the of the podcast, you talked about the way in which humour could be used to critique or criticise religion or politics, and we see uh, the Reformation uh, as a as a target on on both sides. We then see during the 16th century and the 17th century um, attention to trying to control occasions of laughter. So, for example, the sort of puritanical. A backlash against against sort of burlesque and misrule, for example, um, and also I think there is a there's a sense in which um, in which being able to control your laughter, being able to control when you laughed and how you laughed, becomes part of a culture of politeness during the early modern period. The kind of stuff that Norbert Elias in his work on the civilization process. Uh, sort of uncovers and here um, bodily control of of um, of basically bodily wind and gases and burping and farting go alongside laughing but also are sit alongside things in conduct books like how to eat properly how to dress properly all of those kinds of things and bodily control becomes a symbol of social hierarchy so it's something that contrasts the cultivated elite with those who are sort of lower born and base and we can see this in a we can see the way in which particularly in the 17th century laughter and controlling your laugh becomes associated with gentility um, and by the mid 18th century there's a somewhat dated uh, piece of advice given by Lord Chesterfield who wrote Frequent and loud laughter is the characteristic of folly and ill manners. It is the manner in which the mob express their silly joy at silly things. There is nothing so illiberal and so ill-bred as audible laughter, not to mention the dis disagreeable noise that it makes and the shocking distortion of the face that it occasions. So, for example... So, for example, you know, if you are raucously laughing, you're not seen to be a gentleman. So there we are. There's a sort of uh, a little bit of um, there's a little bit of a sort of analysis of of Keith Thomas's article on laughter in 16th and 17th century England. I loved what it said about the appearance of laughter. That's something I have not considered at all. But how you how you physically change when you laugh. Um, I suppose it comes back to that idea of women laughing with their arms by their sides. Um, from the 17th century, which we spoke about earlier, but uh, the uh, just saying that the, the unattractiveness of people laughing—that's that's someone who needs to cheer up a bit, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> wow. So you've got this this idea, which actually has just been introduced there, of how people's faces change when they laugh, and um, I'm wondering if that has got its own history. You could explore that, but 
James, we're, we're already up to half an hour of, of just wonderful history, looking at the history of the laugh. And I think we can carry on. So we're going to pause here, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do come back and listen to part two, where I promise we're going to go into all sorts of wonderful things. I'm going to talk about the film The Joker. I'm going to talk about people not being able to control their laughter in a very, very specific way. James has been talking about it in terms of 17th century social conditions. I'm going to be talking about it in terms of mental illness. I'm also going to be talking a little bit about pathological yawning. I'm going to be talking about Darwin, I'm going to be talking about Rembrandt and art, um, among many, many other things. James, what have you got coming up? I've got farts, Sam. <laughs> I have. Well, I've got some really good... I've got, a, I've got some examples from a jest book okay. uh, that, I'm going to, that I'm going to entertain us with. Wonderful. Uh, a, a 17th century jest book, and I'm going to talk about uh, laughter and gender. Oh, um, tremendous. So lots to come back for. So much to come back for, guys. I do hope you tune in for that. Um, we'll release it as soon as we can. Do please check us out online at historiesoftheunexpected.com. It's got everything we've been doing for the last five or six years now, uh, including our books and all of the previous episodes. If you can't, just find them on your podcast provider app. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the pod at Unexpected Pod. Now, Sam, uh, Christmas is almost upon us. <laughs> no, it isn't. It You're is. A lunatic. It is. No, no, no. <laughs> James I went always out wants to, to do Christmas stuff. I went out to a shop the other day and bought wrapping paper. And it made me think that a really brilliant Christmas present uh, would be the five books that we've written. Oh, that's good. Um, they could be signed. Yes. Just imagine how happy <laughs> a loved one would be opening one on Christmas morning. And you can buy signed books online at our website. We'd be delighted to do that. We sold loads last Christmas and um, they do make wonderful gifts. I've actually just realised I was at the pub the other week and I was given a bit of Christmas pudding and custard with my pint. <laughs> and I was like, my goodness me, it's the middle of September. What on earth is going on? Uh, and anyway, I found that funny and it made me laugh. There we go. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back shortly with part two. Bye. Bye. <laughs>